So we have the privilege this morning of hearing from Abigail Dodds. Abigail, um, I was going to say she had the privilege. I had the privilege of being her roommate um, when we were in college. <laughs> we'll go that way. Um, so I was trying to think of, okay, what's a good story here? And then I thought, you know what? I don't think we were really that exciting. So <laughs> I'm going to embellish for you the, the few lines that she gave me. So she is married to Tom. Now, Tom Dodds is an elder here. And what I have to say there is he's my elder. So watch what you do when you're like in your 19, 20 years age because you never know who's going to become your elder. <laughs> and so back then we didn't have cell phones we just had a phone like on the wall in our apartment and so if Tom ever called Abigail she'd have to talk to Tom with us like you know walking around the house so we used to belt out love songs while she was on the phone so I'd like to say uh, maybe I had a part in them getting married <laughs> so Abigail also is the first person who was ever pregnant as one of my friends. So I got to um, watch her have her first daughter. And it was just an exciting thing. Um, and then following that, uh, four other kids. So she has Eliza, who just um, started college. And that makes us old. Um, <laughs> And then Seth is in high school, Eliana's in high school, Evangeline is in middle school, and Titus, her youngest, is nine. And I was thinking back to Titus being born, which was nine years ago, and um, we spent his whole first, I, we were back there at that table for that year of moms when Titus was born, and we were able to just come around Abigail and Titus and pray for them. And that same year, we were praying for another baby who was going to be born with spina bifida um, and another baby who was going to be adopted um, that had gone through substance abuse. And, and here we are nine years later, and we get to hear a little bit further more testimony about Titus. And um, just want to, you know, exhort, like, look at the women at your table and think about who God has given you that you can pray for. Um, it has been an honor to know Abigail. Um, she's been a gift in my life. But just to think, why is she in my life? Well, I've had 20 years where I've been able to pray for her and each of her children and her husband. So think about the people that you're with, um, how you can pray for them. And as you listen to her story today, you can pray for her too. So uh, let me pray, and then Abigail comes back. Lord, I lift up Abigail to you. Thank you for her ministry to the women here at church um, and her ministry through her writing and her speaking um, that you've gifted with her, or her with and just ask that you can um, give her a sense of peace and calm and share the testimony that you have for her to give today of your grace and your goodness. In your name we pray, amen. It's true, we were so boring. Um, we were the ones in bed by 10, or at least I was. <laughs> Becky stayed up a little more than I did. Um, but we also used to encourage Becky with 
math cheers. I don't know if you guys know this, but Be Becky was a math major in college. She took every incredibly hard math class that they offered, and she's like the only girl sticking it out through that math major. And so um, our other roommate, Leah, and I used to come up with math cheers to cheer for her. <laughs> I wish I could remember part of the one. I just remember cosine, tangent, cosine, sine, 3.14159, integer, integer, rah, rah. <laughs> It was great. They were good, good days. Those were really fun, fun days. <clears throat> All right. Going to get my serious mode on now. It's just way too much fun. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, would you help, help us to turn our hearts to you, um, to turn our hearts to your word, to turn our hearts to receiving what you have for us. Would your spirit help me to speak your truth, and would you make our hearts places to receive it? In Jesus' name, amen. So recently I've been reading history in the Bible um, from 2 Samuel, and I've been reading about how King, the story of King Saul and King Saul's son, Jonathan, and then King David, Jonathan's best friend who takes over Saul's kingdom. And Jonathan, of course, was, David and Jonathan were like tight, tight, tight friends. And King Saul is sort of like, becomes David's greatest enemy. And so after Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle, David mourns deeply both of their deaths. Because even though Saul was his enemy, David loved Saul as sort of like a father. So this is what David says after his mourning um, in 2 Samuel 9. He says, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So David sends for him, and then it, the story continues. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage to him and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So the Bible, thankfully, does not leave us wondering about what God's plan is for disability. And I want us to remember that story of King David bringing Mephibosheth to his table. I want us to keep that story sort of in the back of our minds as we go through this talk that I'm going to give. I want that to sort of just be in the background. But for now, um, we're going to look at two realities of disability, and then we're going to look at four temptations that kind of are particular to this reality, and then we're going to look at one great gift that comes with disability. So first, I'm going to talk about the two things that I think make disability particularly difficult, the things that sort of make it a grief, <clears throat> and there are Excuse me, there are other things, but these were the things that bubbled up to the top for me, so not exhaustive. Um, but the first thing I think that makes disability particularly hard is that it's unexpected. We don't expect disability, and it comes with significant uncertainties. So there's this little scene in a novel called 
Paralandra, which was written by C.S. Lewis, there's this scene um, of a lady in a forest, and this is, this is how it goes. I think you'll be able to catch on to what's happening. What you have made me see, answered the lady, is as plain as the sky, but I never saw it before, yet it has happened every day. One goes into the forest to pick food, and already the thought of one fruit rather than another has grown up in one's mind. Then, it may be, one finds a different fruit and not the fruit one thought of. One joy was expected and another is given. But this I had never noticed before, that at the very moment of the finding, there is in the mind a kind of thrusting back or a setting aside. The picture of the fruit you have not found is still, for a moment, before you. And if you wished, if it were possible to wish, you could keep it there. You could send your soul after the good you had expected instead of turning it to the good you had got. You could refuse the real good. You could make the real fruit taste insipid by thinking of the other. And I think that sort of sums up um, what we're prone to do when that diagnosis or that difficult disability comes. We make our real lives, the things we've been given, the real good in front of us, taste insipid by chasing after that thing that we expected to get. So in 2012, um, that's when I became pregnant with our fifth child, Titus James, as uh, Becky told you. And after having four other living children, I had a pretty, pretty reasonable idea of what to expect from pregnancy and childbirth. But at his 20-week ultrasound, we found that his brain was measuring small in some areas. And so we were sent to specialty clinics for regular ultrasounds and checking on things until he was born. But once he was born, um, it wasn't until he was about two months old that we were certain that there were some disabilities. Mostly this was because he had really crossed eyes, that he didn't open very much, and because of low muscle tone. So an MRI confirmed that there were several problems with his brain. And the first year of his life was mainly spent trying to understand what was wrong with him. Um, because of the unusual brain abnormalities that his MRI showed, the doctors believed that this could mean that he would decline and die early in life or not. <laughs> um, so we lived in what felt at times like almost suffocating uncertainty. Even after extensive genetic testing um, that he underwent and our whole family had to undergo, he was just a mystery for us for several years. <clears throat> and I think with all of our children, whether disabled or not, there are elements of surprise and things that we don't expect. We can't predict their personality. We don't know what they're going to look like. But despite that, we still have sort of a, a right idea of what healthy development looks like or expectations for behavior, but with disability, those are unpredictable. And as Lewis says, one joy was expected, but another is given. So when Mary and Joseph, you know, rolled into Bethlehem on their donkey, finding there's no room for them at the inn, just think of all the things that for them were out of the ordinary and unexpected. They've both been visited by angels. Uh, Mary's a virgin, about to give birth, and now they're laying their baby king down in a stable in a manger. And I would imagine a modern-day sort of unsanctified version of Mary was probably quite, would be quite put out about 
this whole situation and her accommodations. And then they have to flee, uh, flee for their lives to Egypt because Herod is searching for their baby king's son. And in his fury that the wise men had tricked him, he murders all the boys two years old and younger in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. So those are trying times. The scriptures and the Christmas story in particular are full of God's people living with great uncertainty regarding their earthly circumstances. And I think that sums up one of the things that's particularly hard about disability, whether it's autism or Down syndrome or a rare genetic problem or something milder or something much more severe. What, what makes it difficult is the uncertainty. We're given something we weren't expecting and we're not sure how it's gonna play out. We don't know how much it's going to cost us or how much it's going to cost our child. Our plans are not coming to pass. God's are. And we are invited to truly walk by faith in God's story, not the story we thought we'd have. So the second reality of disability that I think makes it difficult, a grief, hard, is that it comes with real ongoing physical trials and these can often be lifelong. So besides the uncertainty, there are real physical challenges. Uh, so just as, as an example, for the first six years um, of Titus's life, he had significantly disrupted sleep. It's funny to say that phrase, and it just took me like half of a second to say it, and yet it consumed six whole years of my life. Now it's just a passing phrase. Um, and he also had weekly, if not usually daily vomit, and this just truly made my life harder than it had been before. I was stretched in ways I had just never been stretched. And I absolutely begged God to change it. I begged him for relief from the physical trials, which he regularly answered with no. It was a little bit like living in very, very deep snow with biting wind searing my skin. We're just walking from one place to another, although in normal circumstances would just be nothing, now it was so difficult, and it just, it would make my muscles burn to do everyday normal things. And then at 14 months, um, he had his first seizure, which landed him in a coma in the ICU for several days. Um, there was eye surgery and feeding tube surgery and pneumonia after pneumonia after pneumonia and ER after ER and doctor appointment upon doctor appointment, therapy after therapy. And of course, none of this really touches how the fact that we have four other children <laughs> and their ongoing needs. Um, I recently was talking to two other special needs moms um, about their children who have disabilities, and they just shared some of the burdens of their physical care. And, and I realized that even if a disabled child doesn't have any medical issues, um, the physical care is still often more taxing than it would be otherwise because it's, it's akin to caring for a young child, only the young child doesn't stay in a young body. You know, that child grows up, but the needs and the care stay the same. And so it's taxing. So it's these two realities. One, living with the unexpected uncertainty in regard to our child's development and health. And two, the ongoing physical trials that I think can lead to some particular temptations. Temptations that I know I've faced, I still face, and temptations that are not unique to disability. 
They apply to any trial, any suffering. The first temptation is this. It's the temptation to think that the circumstances are the real problem when the real problem is the sinful ways we respond to the circumstances. So there is a difference between trying difficult circumstances and sin. That's so obvious, right? But it isn't obvious in our real life. (laughs) There is a difference between a physical trial and a spiritual sin against God. Oftentimes, our circumstances bring us low. They humble us in some way. Like, for instance, the times my attempts to correct an odd or childish behavior in Titus have made that behavior much worse. (laughs) Or the many nights his feeding tube came unhooked in the middle of the night and literally would drench our bed full of formula and we'd wake up soaked. Or my just abysmal mental function and memory for several years. Or how often I was a friend who truly could not give back to my friends. Or the little things like how my slippers were always splattered with stomach contents. Like these things just humbled me personally. They brought me low. Yet Jesus himself was born infant lowly, as the hymn says. And one thing I've learned over the years is that trying truly difficult circumstances and even frequently humorous trials of disability, those are not the problem. Lowly, humbling circumstances are not sinful. Having Titus puke in the preschool hallway down there Sunday morning after Sunday morning and freak out whole unsuspecting swaths of parents, (laughs) especially when it was clear that I was still going to put him in his class, (laughs) um, is actually not a real problem. The real problem is a heart that cannot laugh about that, right? The terrible trials of brain abnormalities and sleep disturbances and constant vomit are not the culprit of my fear or my lack of trust. Rather, they have been the gracious circumstances God has ordained to show me what might really harm me, the sin that resides in my heart. Our deepest problem is always our sin, not our circumstances, no matter how trying those circumstances are. Jesus entered into a world beset with sin and the effects of sin. He experienced the effects of sin in his physical human body. He was surrounded by circumstances that were the result of sin, terrible trying circumstances, but he never sinned. Philippians 2.8 says that he was found in human form and he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You can hear both the lowliness and the holiness of Jesus in that verse. He humbled himself by becoming a creature, yet even as a creature, he did what no other created person could do. He obeyed God perfectly. He was holy. His lowliness did not negate his holiness. You see, humble circumstances, trying times, being lowly, are not the enemy of your holiness. Not in God's economy of things. For those who belong to God, lowliness may only ever serve your holiness. Isn't that what God means when he says in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, for God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That means that for those who belong to Christ, suffering is always producing things in your life, good things for the Christian. God uses our humbling circumstances, our trying times, even disability, ours or others, to work for our good. In Christ, our lowliness serves our holiness. And this brings me to our second temptation, which is the temptation to self-pity. Self-pity, which is, I believe, unbelief. Believing that the path that you're on is truly uncharted territory, when in fact, it was charted for you by God before the foundation of the world. You see, we don't always receive these humbling circumstances as we ought. Uh, We can fight them. And as a matter of fact, sometimes suffering and the trials of disability lead to bitterness, strife, sloth, envy, and hatred even. If we're even a little bit honest with ourselves, we have to acknowledge that this is true. Our human nature is prone to automatically think that that trying times means that God is far off, distant, not working good, maybe forgetting about us. When we're brought low, it's natural in our flesh to think that God, he's not here with us. His love isn't being poured into our hearts. Endurance, uh, character, and hope aren't being produced in us. This is our temptation. In particular, I do think it's easy for us as women to fall into self-pity, a poor me or a why me attitude. We can begin to wonder if anyone is noticing what a uniquely hard time we are having. (laughs) We may begin a little inner monologue um, where we're thinking about all the things people should be doing to help us. We may start to create lists in our minds of like 10 things you shouldn't say to a special needs mom. And we may start to develop our whole identity around this trial or any trial and wear it as a badge of victim honor. We want to make sure everyone is paying homage to this status of victimhood. And can I tell you from personal experience that this sort of thinking leads to death? This is the way that you slowly build a throne bit by bit that is only fit for yourself. Self-pity with its near cousins, bitterness and envy will build you a throne of unbelief. Self-pity doesn't believe that God loves you. It averts its eyes away from the cross of Christ. Self-pity decides that you have to take care of you alone. And if you don't climb down off of that throne of treason right now and smash it to bits and bow to King Jesus, receiving his forgiveness and love, someday God will cast that throne and whoever's on it straight into hell. And it will be too late. We must not let our lowly circumstances make us grasp at a throne of victimhood and self-pity and unbelief. Instead, we can look to the humble, lowly infant child 
God the Son becoming man, taking on human flesh, in him we truly have irrefutable truth that God is for us and he loves us. He is with us in the all-too-human difficulties of life. He was tempted in every way but without sin, and the scripture tells us that this makes him a sympathetic high priest, one who has suffered, one who was brought low of his own accord, but now every bit of our lowliness is an opportunity to suffer with him. That is, to have fellowship with him, to have his love poured into our hearts, Our difficulties are only ever the occasion of our deeper communion with Christ. And because of this, we truly can rejoice in our sufferings. They are producing character and endurance and hope. So the third temptation that we face is the temptation to sentimentalize our child with a disability. We can do this to other children as well. Um, That is, we forsake true love for easy, cheap, sickly love. So I think sentimentalizing children is something we should talk more about, not just in regard to disability, but in mothering more generally, because I think it's an area where Satan has really made some ground with mothers. It's certainly an area I've had to fight against and continue to fight against. If I could explain what's wrong with sentimentalizing our children, I would say it's the same problem of self-pity, only it's just turned on our child, a smaller person. Instead of saying, poor me, we say, poor baby. Moms who sentimentalize their children tend to treat them more like pets or puppies rather than people. It's a cheap love whose foundation is unbelief, just like self-pity. It doesn't believe God's kindness and discipline are really for our child's good. It's almost like we become an intermediary. We don't want, we don't think God is truly for our child, so we'll take care of our child. Um, We can tend to see our children as an extension of ourselves, which is why we can feel sorry for our children in the same way that we feel sorry for ourselves. Uh, A poor me mom doesn't expect much from her child because it would mean she'd have to expect a lot more from herself. She'd have to stop being lazy or making excuses for her children. Like, it's possible that they aren't hitting other kids because they didn't get a nap. Maybe they're hitting other kids because mom allowed it and used the nap as an excuse. And if this is an easy trap for any mom to fall into, you can see how it's a particularly easy trap for a mom of, with a disabled child to fall into. Because disabled children really do have more weaknesses than other children. They really do have some legit reasons why their behaviors aren't good at times. They really do need extra care and understanding. But they also really do need more than our excuses or reasons for why they can't do certain things, true as that may be. They also need our full-orbed Christian love that labors for their growth and their maturity and their spiritual well-being. And that takes so much more than mere sentiment. It takes a deeply sacrificial love, not a sickly sort of like, aren't they cute, I'll love them while they're sleeping at nap time, but I really don't like them at playtime type of sentiment. And lastly... Uh, we have the temptation to grow weary in well-doing. 
Uh, some of you, probably many of you might know that Titus was in the ICU on Easter Sunday morning of 2021. Um, he had a three-hour seizure that morning that we could not get under control, and we were so excited to come to church that day because we had missed Easter the Sunday before because COVID. And so we were having a wonderful morning of croissants and fancy clothes and also Titus seizing for a very long time. So we ended up um, in the ER, and then after his oxygen levels continued to dip and they could not get the seizure to stop, he ended up being again on a ventilator in a coma. So needless to say, that was not what I was expecting for that day. Um, and it's in its own way, 2021 was a little bit of a difficult year for us. It seemed that God was flying the flag of unpredictable hardships over our home. Just when we think we'd have one sort of figured out, a new one would pop up. And so as I sat in the chair next to um, my son's hospital bed, I'm sitting there in my brightly colored Easter dress, royal blue with these bright red flowers all over it. They were just about to leaf, leap off of my dress, just full of hope and the promise of Easter. And I'm right next to my son in his like very sad hospital gown, not awake, not breathing for himself, very pallid. Um, and in that moment, of course, we face a fork in the road. We can choose to reproach God, take this humbling circumstance and be angry about it. Where is the promise of your healing God? Where is the sign of your presence? Or we can trust him and remember that even if my son were to die, there would be new life because of Christ. Easter's true. And it may seem, it really may seem like that moment is the hardest moment. Doesn't it sound like that? It's a dramatic moment. But you know it really wasn't? Um, that moment wasn't the hardest moment. Another massive lesson that I've learned over the course of this journey with disability is that the big awful moment of hardship usually actually causes us to rise to the occasion. We can sort of see that this awful thing is happening and we cast ourselves on God and he does carry us through. And for me, it's been the smaller hardships right after the big trial that tend to catch me flat-footed. It's a little like hosting a big celebration or Easter or Thanksgiving, and you are preparing and prepping and gearing up and doing all the things, and everyone comes and you're welcoming them and you're warm and you're ready to do the thing that you have set out to do. And then the next day is when you are tempted to be rude to your poor family and want to just like never do the dishes again. Um, we've all probably imagined ourselves in some kind of terrible trial at some point. And in that sense, we've sort of prepped ourselves. We know that when the big trial comes, we're supposed to turn to God. So we do. That's good. But what do we do in the moments after the big trial? What do we do in the slog of the aftermath or just in the daily grind of therapies and appointments where there's not much progress? or when you're diligently correcting a behavior that simply does not ever seem to improve over the years. I think personally that it's those times when the temptation to grow weary in well-doing comes very, very near. Galatians 6, 7 through 10 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So why should we not grow weary in well-doing? Because we will reap in due season if we do not give up. We are sowing seeds. They're hidden underground. We may think there's no harvest from all these seeds that we're sowing. The seeds of, of patience in the midst of trying times and the seeds of constant training and dying to self and putting another above ourselves and loving the least of these. This is true about mothering generally and it's doubly true of mothering a child with a disability. We're sowing seeds. Don't give up. A harvest of eternal life is coming. So I just want to leave you with one great gift that comes from disability. It's certainly not the only gift, but it's the one that I want to talk about. And it's the gift of childlike dependence and trust. Matthew 18, 1 to 4 says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples were seeking glory. Who is the greatest? Jesus' response must have shocked them in the same way that it does us. The greatest are those who have refused a particular kind of aging, the kind that leads to cynicism, uh, doubt, scoffing, hypocrisy, and pretense, and instead have grown new and childlike and full of faith. So when Eve ate that forbidden fruit in the garden, she grew up in the worst kind of way. One could say that that was the moment that she became the deadly sort of adult that cannot enter the kingdom because she has lost her ability to enjoy all the good things that will be there, especially the Lord. When we turn and become children, we show that we have a father, a trusted, good father. Everything is received as from him, we are full of wonder and delight and restored to a certain kind of innocence that only comes through dependence. And disability can, if we let it, give us the gift of dependence and wonderful childlike trust. Partly because some disabled people are more childlike than others, and so they force us to continue to see with greater wonder and delight from their perspective but also because their dependence on us reveals our great dependence on God. We are no more or less dependent on God than a disabled person. God gives us life and breath and everything else. We need him just like a helpless baby needs her mother. So remember Mephibosheth, Jonathan's crippled son, that dined at King David's table. King David showed God's kindness to his friend's crippled son. David took Mephibosheth into his care, and he became dependent on David's kindness. But King Jesus does even more. He invites the lame, the poor, the deaf, and the dumb to dine with him. 
but he does not just invite them to eat with him. He heals all their diseases. He makes the lame leap and the deaf hear and the dumb speak. God's plan is to redeem and to restore all of his children, even the one with disabilities, just like he plans to redeem and restore us. And that is good news for all of us this Christmas. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that our humility, our lowness, can serve our holiness and our Christ-likeness. Thank you for your plan. Thank you that you did it the way you did it and not some other way. Help us to trust you and to receive that and to be submissive to you and bow before your throne alone. In Jesus' name, amen.